You are listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation. We are an organisation pursuing real learning, original scholarship and thoughtful living in a dying age. Welcome back to another episode of Christianity and Classical Culture with Dr. Thomas Fleming. I'm your host, Stephen Heiner. And today we are going to be talking about Marcus Aurelius, philosopher, emperor, and one of the proponents of the school of Stoicism. And I suppose most of our listeners have heard of Marcus Aurelius, they've heard of Stoicism, and they can see that there is an obvious link to Christianity, Dr. Fleming, but we should probably start in the beginning by explaining who was Marcus Aurelius and what kind of world did he grow up in. Yeah. Marcus uh, grew up in, uh, well, he was born, he came from a distinguished Spanish provincial family. Um, that didn't mean that he had a lot of Spanish blood, which, uh, but rather that he was descended mainly from uh, Roman colonists in Spain. Uh, his family and his grandfather's day, at least, had become very prominent within the Roman Empire, within the, the governing uh, patriciate uh, aristocracy. And um, he was gradually adopted into the uh, imperial family. Uh, Hadrian had wanted him uh, sort of listed in the succession to as a possible emperor in the future. And then he was formally adopted by Antoninus Pius. These are the famous five good emperors, the, the Antonines, uh, uh, although the first emperor was Nerva. They, they, te- they were largely provincials, either their families coming from Spain or uh, southern France. It showed how cosmopolitan the, emperor, the empire had become. And the, it was, as uh, Edward Gibbon says in his famous Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, he said it was perhaps the happiest time to be alive in the history of the human race. That is, the, the empire was stable, the frontiers were established and defended, both in the east against the uh, Parthians, who were heirs to the Persian Empire, and the northern barbarians, our ancestors, in other words, were, were, uh, were, being, were being decisively kept, uh, kept in line. And uh, it was a flourishing Greco-Roman civilization, and so into all of this, you know, the, 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 the emperors like like Antoninus Pius and Marcus Aurelius, presided over a just law, uh, law-bound law legal structure and, and imperial structure. So it was quite a good, uh, it, it, it was certainly one of those times that you, you wouldn't mind being there, assuming you could have a decent health care. Oh, by the way, Marcus had uh, had uh, the most famous physician of antiquity as his own personal doctor. So he was raised, he wasn't born to the purple, but he, after the death of his father, he was quickly uh, sort of absorbed into the imperial royal family. Uh, upon the death of uh, his stepfather, Antoninus Pius, <clears throat> he became emperor in 161, and ruled until 180. Initially, he ruled with Lucius Verus, a kind of a cousin as co-emperor, until Verus' death in 169. But uh, Marcus says very coyly, you know, when he talks about what uh, his relatives had taught him, he said, well, he learned from his brother what, what mis- basically what mistakes to avoid, because Lucius was intemperate and uh, drank too much and uh, and it was too ambitious, but he uh, did seem to adore his uh, his older adopted brother. So it was uh, the, he was an, a very effective, efficient, and honest emperor, and he had to spend much of his life in the saddle. Although he was a lifetime student, especially of philosophy, especially of the Stoics, although he studied uh, all the ancient schools of philosophy and learned from each of them, he wasn't dogmatic, but he found himself as a responsible ruler, he had to do what he had to do, which is to defend the Roman Empire from its enemies, namely the, the Parthians in the east and especially the Germans in the north. Had he lived... It is conjectured by many historians. Had he lived, he would have he would have 
basically settled the hash of the German barbarians. That is, beat, he was about to beat them down so severely that it would have been hundreds of years before they dared try to invade the empire again. Unfortunately, when he died, his rotten son Commodus immediately abandoned the expedition against the Germans, rushed back home to Rome to be able to enjoy a profligate reign. Uh, uh, Commodus is one of those emperors that uh, shows the truth of Sam Johnson's great observation, which is there is a remedy in nature against tyranny, the remedy being assassination. So the, the death of Marcus, in fact, is the end of the great period of the Roman Empire after the misrule of his son, of course, then in, as a civil war, the winner of which is Septimius Severus, who, who turns the empire more into a military command structure. So we're dealing with the, 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 the last of the emperors under whom it would really be uh, very desirable to be alive. Well, and when you talk about that five good emperors um, period, Dr. Fleming, what was right before that and what comes right after that? Well, beforehand, uh, of course, the, the, you know, Augustus establishes uh, the empire, and it's, it's quite a brilliant, it's one of the greatest accomplishments of any statesman in history. He took republican principles almost straight out of Cicero, but implemented them into an imperial structure that, that uh, prevented civil war and, 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 and gave continuity and uh, security to the Roman people and, and who by then, you know, covered most of the Mediterranean and, and good parts of a good part of what is now France and Belgium and Switzerland. So uh, the, the each succeeding Caesar was more or less worse than the last until the infamous Nero. But after Nero, you know, there came to power Vespasian, which show, who was uh, uh, came from uh, outside of Rome, came from uh, Reate, uh, a, a Sabine. Middle class, upper middle class family, well to do, but governed very wisely and well, although his one, the one big opposition to him and his sons were the Stoic philosophers in the Senate who kept on acting as if they lived in a republic. Tacitus has very hard words for these people because Vespasian was a good emperor, but his, uh, his second son, Domitian, was a rotten emperor. These, these people, like Commodus and Domitian and Caligula, show you what happens when you raise a child within wealth and privilege and never tell him no. They're, they were raised like modern American teenagers and they turned out to be punks and hoodlums and gangsters. Unfortunately, they were gangsters with, with incredible power. So it's a real warning because the, all the, the good emperors tend to be people who either killed their way to the top or, or it's a system of adoptions, but they didn't grow up expecting to enjoy absolute power. And among the few good emperors who inherited power were, for example, uh, Titus, the son of Vespasian, but he, was a, but he was a grown man fighting in the army when his father became emperor. So if you're raised to expect the world is what anything you want to make out of it, which is how we bring up American teenage boys, then you're going to turn out probably very badly. Afterwards, of course, it became a militarized empire. Uh, the Severus brought some stability and he was a competent ruler, but he, had, he was uh, also ruthless. And uh, during all the ups and downs of Germanic invasion and civil war, the empire had to respond the only way it could by centralizing power into and making it sort of a military structure and uh, culminating, of course, in the attempt of Diocletian to organize the whole thing. This really meant a, a rigidity. It meant more Christ persecution of Christians, and it meant uh, ultimately, you know, the, the body of the empire was became like a, like an insect. In other words, it was hard on the surface, but but indefensible at the center because the people could no longer uh, defend themselves. Obviously, this is a grotesque oversimplification of a. Uh, of uh, three or four hundred years of history. Well, and you also mentioned that he is a man of learning, and I remember there are some emperors of that time period who would make statements uh, regarding Greek that uh, that it was one of the languages of the empire. So he'd say something yes. like, "Yes," uh, and he's speaking in one of our languages, and that that Greek was was normatively considered one of the languages of the empire. Would would you classify Marcus as one of these? 
Oh, absolutely. His med- his uh, the one work we have of him, his meditations, is written in Greek. It's a it's a little puzzle why he wrote in Greek, but I think what what that t- it tells you that Greek by this time, by the middle of the second century, a Greek revival was going growing up, especially in the eastern part of the Roman Empire, not so much in mainland Greece, not so much in Athens, as in what would now be Syria and Turkey. And a series of quite brilliant, witty uh, Latin literature seems to be uh, falling into the doldrums. On the other hand, probably he, he would have had a bigger audience uh, among the Roman, in the Roman world had he written in, uh, in Latin. But Greek was felt to be the language of philosophy. There have been people who said that, you know, Latin is really a, a better language philosophy because it's more beautiful and flexible. But yes, the empire and even the uh, sort of thing, it's, uh, it's Latin is Greek. It also became the line from the Latin church, from the Roman church. And uh, what is now Yugoslavia or actually Serbia, area, uh, Turkey, Syria, the whole Middle East, all of that, and as, uh, all of that was Greek speaking. Whereas Egypt, uh, Egypt was mixed. Egypt was a, uh, probably much more Greek at this time than, than, than Roman. But as you go west across North Africa into Spain, you're you're back into Latin territory. A a decent Roman administrator at that time, you know, anybody who wanted a career would have to know at least as much Greek as say an English diplomat in the 18th century would have to know French. It's a, it, and perhaps perhaps even more so. You know, one of the, uh, you know, Mel Gibson makes a movie allegedly about, <laughs> based on the life of Christ. And, um, and of course, what poor Mel does not understand is that nobody's speaking Latin in the, in the eastern side of the empire. And they're not speaking Aramaic either in public business. What they're speaking is Greek. How do we know that our Lord knew Greek? I think I've asked you, it's a trick question. I've asked you this before, maybe. I, All right. We're, at the tri- when Pilate has, uh, investigates uh, Jesus, where's the translator? They don't, there is no translator. They have one common language, and, and Jesus speaks Greek, Pilate speaks Greek, and so everything is, and that's why the new, one of the reasons the New Testament is written in Greek. There were certainly a few Aramaic Gospels and various other things, but Paul and Luke uh, started out in Greek. You know, so that's why Greek was the language of the church for several hundred years. Um, Latin mass fanatics, and I know you're not one of them, Latin mass fanatics try to pretend that Latin was from the beginning the language of the church. No, in Rome, the popes were speaking Greek because Greek, Greek was the language for the first couple of centuries. And as for the meditations themselves, how, how was it expressed? Did you, did you find it to be fairly well-written Greek? Oh, it's, it's quite, yes, it's very nice Greek. He writes Greek naturally. It's not, not affected there was a revival of Attic, and he's, he's of course influenced by that. And uh, but he 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 had been reading Greek, he'd been studying Greek all his life. So for him to speak Greek, he, he was he was bilingual. So it was it's it's quite a, a, a beautiful book. It's funny, you know, it disappears uh, until very late antiquity, and uh, we hear it among some of the late Aristotelians and Platonists, and Themistius talks about it, and. Uh, and then it disappears until I don't know, not a uh, uh, fairly late medieval period when 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 it pops back up in the Byzantine world. But uh, <clears throat> it, it's a little odd because of all the books of ancient philosophy, uh, the Meditations is probably the most attractive to the non-philosopher reader. In other words, you don't have to have studied philosophy to read it and be impressed by it. Well, obviously, the, the Greek revival is related to Stoicism in that the, the Romans did not invent Stoicism. They, they somewhat adapted it. So can, can you tell us about basic, the basic Stoic moral tenets, and then maybe we can move into the difference between Roman Stoicism and, say, Greek Stoicism? Yeah. Stoics, uh, Stoicism, and we've talked about <clears throat> a little bit about it in our podcast on, uh, on Seneca, Stoicism begins uh, it's in, in, in Athens. It's actually created by a, uh, a, a Hellenized Phoenician. And uh, it picks up a lot from uh, Aristotle especially. Uh, there were accusations that Stoicism was just <clears throat> Aristotle expressed in technical jargon. And that's, that's not really true, but there, there are, that's an element of truth in that. 
It uh, early Greek Stoicism emphasized <clears throat> the importance of virtue. Only virtue was good. Nothing else in life made any difference. Not wealth, not power, not glory, good reputation, not a good family, not a happy marriage. None of that was really useful. And uh, everything was on one extreme or the other. That is, either something was conducive to you becoming virtuous or it wasn't. Either, and if you were virtuous, you had to be completely virtuous or you were simply a fool like everybody else. So the early Stoics were, were extremists, sort of like uh, like some of the early Christians. You have to be 100% or you're nothing. He who is not completely with us uh, is, is against us. Every man, they taught, had it in his uh, power to be happy, and because the only way to be happy is to be perfectly virtuous, and you, <clears throat> thus you could, the virtuous man is indifferent, for example, to uh, misfortune and pain. And this gives us the modern use of the word stoic, like uh, he, he was stoical in the face of losing $100 million in the stock market. That is, you can rise, you can rise above these misfortunes. They emphasized um, what the Greek word to kathekon, that which, reach, that which pertains to us, what's incumbent upon us to do. Everybody, uh, in other words, what we would call duty, each of us has a part to play in the universe, and we have a structure of obligations where we have to uh, discharge our responsibility. Now, in the early Stoics, uh, they were not very big on the obligations to family and country. As Stoicism develops, it becomes more and more uh, accommodating to the human realities. And it is the triumph of Roman Stoicism to combine the Roman character, which was very emphatic about the duties of fathers and citizens, and to combine that with the general Stoic uh, uh, overview. The, uh, in the extreme form, in the early form, you know, the Stoics claim to be citizens of the world, a term which has become particularly unpleasant in our own time as we, as we teach children, it's not important to live in your hometown or your state or your country or your family. What's really important is that you care about Syrian refugees. And, and uh, I'm told that their Catholic schools are now having special programs where you get to correspond with Muslim refugee children and, and commiserate with them and send them presents. But uh, what all the Stoics meant was they were universalizing their morality. Uh, the, what they, they, they hated, the Stoics who were aware of Judaism, the one thing they most hated about Judaism is that in the Torah and in the rabbinical writings, uh, Jewish religion distinguishes between those who are on the inside, that is Jews and sojourners, they're you know, aspiring to be Jews, and everybody else. And frankly, everybody else could be cheated or you could seduce their wives. Or, it, it's a, it's a two-track moral system. And for a Stoic, this was obscene. And so the, it was an emphasis on universal duty. This it was very impractical as an ideal. And, and so we find, for example, Cicero ridiculing his Stoic friends constantly for their insistence on perfect virtue, their insistence on being citizens of the world. By, <clears throat> there's a, Epictetus, who was a slave, and uh, who, whose writings very much influenced uh, Marcus, tells us that he found it absurd that a man would mourn the loss of his own wife, but he remained indifferent to the news of the death of another's wife. You could see how this would play into modern leftism. We're supposed to care as much about uh, 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 the abuse of women in China as we would about the abuse of, abuse of our own daughter in school. And in other words, uh, these these... The, the, what Jefferson called the wretched depravity of, uh, of specific you know, obligations. Uh, Cicero found this amusing. Uh, Seneca wrestled with it. His philosophy told him he should not mourn the death of a friend, but his humanity told him he had to. Dr. Johnson himself in, in Rasselas and elsewhere <clears throat> shows his contempt for the Stoics because they had no human feelings toward the people who should count the most to them. But uh, this is where Marcus, the emperor, 
parts company with the Stoic tradition most dramatically in his insistence that we have to have compassion uh, for others. Now, in general, by the time of, say, uh, Vespasian, Stoicism was the religious and philosophical tradition embraced by a majority of the educated upper classes in Rome. It taught them what their duty was, and it taught them to endure the, uh, under an imperial autocracy, which they resented. Some of them, of course, did uh, preferred rebellion. And uh, it, it also, but it was, it was part of the whole sort of uh, Republican ideology. Uh, Stoicism was for them what sort of reverence for the Constitution is for uh, uneducated American conservatives. So understanding where Greek Stoicism comes from, and I think you give a, a very tight exposition, how do we move on? Obviously, we know Romans are very practical <clears throat> and very into into laws. That's where we, we, we get our, our legal, the, the framework of our legal system from. How do Roman attitudes adapt Greek Stoicism? One of the ways is uh, the, the, Roman, uh, the Romans, I think, were attracted to Stoicism because of its emphasis on duty. And the notion of duty expressed variously in Latin, but the notion of duty is more or less central to Roman civic morality. Doing your duty as a parent, doing your duty as a citizen, doing your duty as a soldier, this, this is extremely important. So they were attracted to Stoicism. What would have put them off, as it put off Cicero, was the extremism. In other words, this, this whole idea that there's only virtue and everything else is either, is either wickedness or that there's a sphere of indifference, like which flavor of ice cream you like. But their sphere of indifference also included the suffering of your own children, because, you know, whether your children were happy or unhappy was irrelevant to your own virtue and therefore to your, to your own happiness. Uh, this is in strong contrast with Aristotle and the Greek tradition who said, who, you know, Aristotle said, is it possible that a man who was wealthy and succeeded went well and then dies in, in, at peace as later as invaded? There's his people are subjugated, his wife is murdered, his children die. Can we call such a man happy? And Aristotle says, well, I think so, even though it goes against the grain. Now, now really think about it. In other words, your happiness is inclusive. It's included in the happiness of those around you, your family and your community. And this, uh, this, this idea is far more compatible with, uh, with, with, the, with the Roman mind, and it gradually, Stoicism is somewhat changed. It takes a while, and, 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 but they're, they're constantly trying to understand that while I have a duty to the world, I have uh, a, also a duty as a Roman. Let me read a little passage. This is one of the most famous passages of the uh, meditations. This is the first two chapters <clears throat> Of book two. And because Marcus, remember, is this is an intimate diary. This is like a spiritual diary. It's the kind of book you'd expect more from the Middle Ages than you would expect from the ancient world. This was not written for publication. I, I, I'm surprised that uh, his heirs didn't simply set it on fire. Say to thyself at daybreak, I shall come across the busybody, the thankless, the overbearing, the treacherous, the envious, the man who is not neighborly. All this has happened uh, to them because they do not know good from evil. Now, notice immediately you, you, for, you, you begin by, you know you're going to meet every kind of jerk in the world, but you begin by forgiving them because they don't know right from wrong. But I, in that I have comprehended the nature of the good, that it is beautiful, and the nature of evil, that it is ugly, and the nature of the wrongdoer himself, that it is akin to me. In other words, we're, 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 one of the, we're humans, and so we have this inclination, not as partaker of the same blood and seed, but of intelligence and a morsel of the divine. I can neither be injured by any of them, for no one can involve me in what is debasing, nor can I be angry with my kinsman, that is my fellow human being, and hate him. 
For we have come into being for cooperation, as we have the feet, the hands, the eyelids, upper and lower teeth. In other words, man, as, as Aristotle says, man was born to live in a community. And here, Marcus is saying almost the same thing. We are born uh, for cooperation. And by the way, translations of Marcus are, can be quite misleading. They refer to things like individual, the individual and the community. He says the city and the citizen using the classical language of Greek philosophy. Therefore, <clears throat> to thwart one another is against nature. And we do thwart one another by showing resentment and aversion. And then he goes on in perhaps his most sublime passage. This that I am, whatever it be, is mere flesh and a little breath and the ruling reason. That is the hegemonic power of reason that is implanted in all of us in our soul. Away with thy books. Be no longer drawn aside by them. It is not allowed. But as one already dying, disdain the flesh. It is nothing but gore and bones, a network compact of nerves and veins and arteries. Look at the breath, too, what sort of thing it is. Air, and because the Romans looked upon breath as, you know, as the breath of life and the soul. Air, and not even that, always the same, but every minute belched forth and again gulped down. Thirdly, there is the ruling reason. Put thy thought thus, thou art an old man. Let this be uh, a servant, no longer, no more a puppet pulled aside by every selfish impulse. That is, make sure the ruling power of reason rules and is not subject to, to whim and moods. Nor let it grumble any longer at what is allotted to it in the present or dread it in the future. Now, this is, uh, this is you know, if you read this as the, the meditations of a medieval saint, you would understand it very much as, as, as a Christian uh, injunction to yourself to obey the higher nature in you, that is the, the soul given you by God, and to ignore the impulses of flesh and emotion that produce, that produce envy and greed and resentment. Well, and, so, and this is obviously the Christianity in the, in the classical culture part. What I think is even more remarkable about what you've just read, Dr. Fleming, is it's easy for us to think of a medieval monk composing this in the silence of a monastery, but yes. he was doing it from uh, in his tent uh, a few yards away from, you know, battlefields. Uh, so he was out on campaign when he was writing this. To have the quietude of his mind to be able to compose something like this is really remarkable. Yes. And, you know, uh, one of the you, you, you bring up a good point. If you when you read the meditations, like it'll say in point after point. Written, written in my tent among the Quadi or the Marcomani. You know, he's yes. he's there up in 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 Austria or Germany on campaign, leading men into battle. Of course, you know we think the, oh these degenerate defeat Romans. Who's the last Who's the last American president that led men in battle? Ever led men in battle? I guess Eisenhower. But no, no, that's not true. Eisenhower was never never heard a, a shot fired in anger in World War One. Uh, so this is this is more like Robert E. Lee. Imagine imagine General Lee, who who's, who's also whose highest principle was duty. And he said, you know, what does he say? You 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 may not do any less, and you and you cannot do more than to do your duty. It is it is now uh, th th that's an extreme statement, and there are limits to what is called deontological ethics. That is ethics based in duty and, and Marcus understands this because he also is, is insists upon a compassion and tolerating other people's shortcomings you know if you if you read some uh, some saintly of monastic literature you know you read the letters of Saint Jerome he's constantly gnashing his teeth about the shortcomings of everybody else nobody is as good as Jerome and he makes fun of St. Ambrose's prose style. You know, he was, a, he was an angry man. Today, we'd send him to anger management class. <laughs> but, uh, and there are a lot of saints who, are, who walk around angry, holier than, they're angry because they know they're holier than, than the rest of us. And uh, this is not a wholesome attitude. It's a very human attitude. And, and uh, of course, the great saints rise above that and, uh, you know, tolerate, uh, tolerate others. The Marcus says at one point, he says, well, 
all right, somebody comes to see you and his armpits stink and he's got bad breath. Should you hold it against him? Well, and you say, well, he should be aware of this. Yes, it's, it's, it's true. You should brush your teeth and, you know, wash your body and you should be aware that you're offending people. But, you know, don't, can't I rise above his ignorance and understand that we're, we're fellow human creatures and I, you know, I can attend to his needs and, and, and put that as, and put aside his shortcomings. And of course, the same thing is true of the envious man, the greedy man, the resentful man. Uh, how many times, Stephen, in, in the course of a day, do you say to yourself, oh, well, this, this taxi driver is short, he's, he's, uh, he's overcharging me and he's rude and his cab stinks. And then you say, oh, well, you know, it's just the limitations of his understanding of good and evil. So I forgive it. I, it, this doesn't happen to me very often. <laughs> well, I, I subscribe. I, I do subscribe. There's a um, there's a um, a Buddhist story about a boat coming towards you that has an, an occupant in it, and if you were also in a boat and the boat hit you, you would take offense. But if the same boat was coming towards you and it was empty and it hit you, it wouldn't bother you. So the moral of the story is the boat is empty. That the idea is don't take it personally. Right, so I, I tend to very much when I want to get upset, I tend to tell myself the boat is empty and uh, don't take it personally. So, uh, which sometimes you have to do here in Paris. <laughs> well, you know, one of the uh, I remember one of the things uh, Richard Nixon used to tell Pat Buchanan, which is uh, uh, <clears throat> never argue down, only argue up. And when you're president, there's no up. <laughs> in other words, and you so. To, for example, resent what your social, intellectual, and moral inferiors are doing simply because they are what they are, to, to, you become, and Marcus makes this point, why become what you hate? Why resent a resentful man? You're just joining him in his, in his resentment. Why get angry at the angry man? You're, 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 you're suffering from the, the same the same. Sin. And, um, and he says over and over and over, he praises, although he knows he's becoming a, a, a heretic in, in terms of Stoicism, that, that compassion for the suffering and the limitations of your fellow human beings who are your kinsmen, that the, this compassion is, is uh, for Marcus, an essential part of being fully human. And that's where, obviously, we start to see some overlap with scriptures. I, I wanted to read just a, a couple. I'm going to carry on from where you were talking about in Book 2, uh, Paragraph 5 in my translation. And uh, I'm sorry if uh, uh, I should tell you. It's uh, Martin Hammond is the translator uh, for my Penguin edition. Every hour of the day give vigorous attention, as a Roman and as a man, to the performance of the task in hand with precise analysis with unaffected dignity, with human sympathy, with dispassionate justice, and to vacating your mind from all its other thoughts. Again, to your point, we could find this in a work of spirituality uh, from that time period, from the medieval time period that you were referring to. Um, sorry, go ahead, Dr. Fleming. Oh, no, no, no. Yes, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. And, um, and by the way, that was a passage I had marked, so I'm glad that uh, to, to, to read today, so I'm, I'm, I'm very glad you did. The, um, and in, what, notice there's something a little bit unstoic in this passage, and that is, he says, when he says, and I quote, I'll quote from the, my Loeb uh, translation, which has some shortcomings, um, he says, make up your mind sturdily as a Roman and as a man. Marcus frequently makes this distinction between what your duty is as a Roman and what your duty is uh, as a man and what your duty is actually as, as uh, Marcus Antoninus Aurelius Emperor. He says in book six, I guess it's chapter 44, any, any, my nature is rational and civic, that is political. And <clears throat> that is, I, I, I was... He acknowledges what the Stoics don't always acknowledge, that man is, as Aristotle says, a political animal. By political animal, Aristotle means he's a, man is meant to live in a coherent community. <clears throat> My city and country, as Antoninus, is Rome. And as a man, my city and country is the world. So he's constantly saying, I have two sets of duties. 
I have, of course, my duty to the human race and therefore to me as a human person to act, you know, as in, in, in the manner of a Christian saint. On the other hand, <clears throat> I have things I have to do whether I like them or not. I'm the emperor. I'm the ruler of the largest political entity in the history of the human race up until this time. I have to fight wars. I have to condemn people to death. I have to for uh, rebellions. I have to listen to idiots all day and not get angry. And so <clears throat> he he has special responsibilities. And unlike most Stoics, Marcus is very aware of this. And by the way, one of the greatest accomplishments of Christian ethics, something we might do some shows on, is that branch of moral theology called casuistry. It's a word now used in an almost entirely negative sense, but casuistry is based on the idea that Marcus would understand immediately. First, there are universal human principles which as human beings we must apply. But second, individual cases can be quite thorny and they can be quite difficult and things are not what they seem. And so we have to have a case-by-case -case analysis, especially for the priest confessor who has to listen to people endlessly complaining about all the rotten things they've done, and what, but they don't want to suffer for. So this, this, this two-track attitude, that is, yes, as a Stoic, and as a, as a Stoic human being, I know there are universal laws and I will obey them. But as a Roman and as emperor, as, as Marcus Antoninus Aurelius, there are things, there are specific duties. And as a son, as a father, as a husband, as a brother, as a citizen, I have all these specific duties that I have to carry out. So he is a, he's really, a, uh, he's not usually cited, by the way, in this context. Usually we cite Aristotle and Cicero and then Thomas Aquinas and of course, then of course, the great casuists of the of the later Middle Ages and the Renaissance, culminating <clears throat> in uh, in Saint Alphonsus de Liguori. I understand, by the way, that Saint Alphonsus' moral theology is being translated somewhere and going to be published. Yes, that's true. Yeah, uh, a book which uh, you can't just sit down and read, but every time you have a question about some moral issue, including such un unusual subjects as pornography and, uh, you know very it's a it's it is it is uh, among the most uh, prof maybe the most profound work uh, most important systematic work of moral theology uh, done by uh, by a christian there's one other passage i'd like to read dr fleming before yeah. we start talking about some of the contrasts because i'm reading all of the passages that christians are going to delight in we're going to read this and go yeah marcus that's what i'm talking about um <laughs> So well, book, you might say that. <laughs> right. So, you know, the fanatics like myself. So book three, uh, paragraph 12, uh, the second half of the tw uh, paragraph 12. If you grapple this to you, expecting nothing, shirking nothing, but self-content with each present action taken in accordance with nature and a heroic truthfulness in all that you say and mean, then you will live a good life and nobody is able to stop you. Yeah. So obviously an overlap with that, that idea of Christianity asking us to step beyond what is around us and, to, and that, that final admonition, no one is able to stop you from living a good life. You, you, are, you, you can choose that every day, every moment. Yes, and of course this is um, um, not to compare great things with small, but our, our humble little foundation, one of the, in choosing the motto that we did, and uh, and in our our emphasis is is not that we should for, not that we should forget about the political and social and moral world that we live find ourselves in no matter how awful it is that is not what Marcus tells us to do but that but that the better part of our life should be spent doing as much right and as much good and as much that is beautiful within our own sphere of action the things that we actually can control you know i can't control what they put on cnn or fox news but i can't, i don't have to walk in and turn it on i used to listen to npr just to find out what the uh, what the what the jackasses were saying today i don't it's just it's it's degrading i don't i don't turn it on i don't read mo i i follow specific news stories because it's all it's been part of my job for uh for 35 40 years but 
we, you know, you can, you can get up, as I used to tell uh, my friend Chris Check when he worked for me, he was now at uh, Catholic Answers. I used to tell Chris, Chris, get up and, and don't get up and read the news. Don't get up and do your email. Get, read, a, read, a poem, read, a, read a great poem the first thing in the morning or, or, or read a prayer. Uh, read a passage of scripture, but start out the day with the highest thing that you're going to be grappling with. And then if you have some task, like some serious writing to do, do it. Because time management to me means not the crazy theories which businessmen put out. Time management means you put your best attention to the best things, the most important thing. Yes, there are times when you're doing your taxes or you're paying your bills or you're, you're trying to save your job from, from, from the jackals. This, this, this happens to all of us. But as a general rule, get up, get up and spend your time on what you can control. You, you, you don't have you don't have to be uh, turning on Fox News in the morning. Well, we've been talking about areas of, of overlap that that Christianity matches well with Marcus's brand of stoicism. Are there areas of contrast that you'd like to talk about? Yeah, you know, um, it's it's it is it is very uh, it's an interesting thing that we have. We have this beautiful text of Marcus. And we have, of course, some of his, we have uh, parts of his speeches and various other things that have been collected. And we know a lot about his career. But we also know that Marcus is coming along in a, in a very important part in the, in the evolution of Christianity. He, he, his, in his life, he overlaps with Justin Martyr, the greatest of the early Christian apologists. And Justin, in fact, sends uh, a, a, a apologetic writings dedicated to Antoninus Pius, and his young ward and successor, Marcus. And he explains to them, you should become, you shouldn't be persecuting uh, the Christians. We, 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 all the good things you believe, and we know, young Marcus, that you're studying philosophy, all these good things are what we teach. But so the difference is that only a few rare philosophers on your side even try to live up to these high ideals, whereas ordinary, uneducated Christians who work with their hands, they are living the philosophical life that you uh, claim to. Now, uh, whether Marcus actually saw this, that's, he probably didn't. Why, why, why would it ever get, get to him? Christians were basically nothing in the early second century uh, A.D., but he probably wouldn't have liked it. He regarded Christians as stiff-necked and troublesome, and he even says that their heroism in not repenting when they're going to their death is a sign of perversity. What, what, what's going on? Now, part of, part of his dislike of Christianity was based on the slanders that were being issued by the enemies of Christianity, both pagan and Jewish. Uh, who said, you know, Christians take part in awful, terrible ceremonies, they, they eat children, they perform human sacrifice, they have sex orgies, they call love feasts. And this was told time after time. And if you even <clears throat> read the Acts of the Apostles, anywhere Paul goes, his former co-religionists are denouncing him to the Roman authorities as a, as a troublemaker. And this, and this got much worse. But on the other hand, you know, the church was developing its own problem. Uh, its own troublemakers, Christian fanatics like Montanus and to some extent Tertullian, they, who rejected the empire and its civilization. And they thought you could, all you needed was the Bible. And you meet people like this today. Oh, the Bible has all the answers. Really? The, the Bible tell you how to fix your car or what to do about <laughs> nuclear energy? It's not, it, the, the Bible, the, in, in the Old Testament, the, 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 uh, the value of pi is three. You know, the earth is not only square, it's not only flat, but it's square, it has corners. Now, obviously, the purpose of Holy Scripture is not to give us science or not to give, it's, it's not a guidebook. It's not a handbook, to, it's an encyclopedia to everything in human existence. But this was, it was thought. And Augustine toys with the idea in De Doctrina Christiana, but it becomes, just as John Henry Newman toyed with the idea of trying to create an exclusively Catholic education in, uh, in, uh, in English life. But you, you, they, both, uh, both uh, Newman and Augustine know that this is a futile um, 
a futile quest. Ultimately, though, set aside the slander, set aside the fanatics, the problem is uh, Christ himself. An open-minded uh, Greek philosopher, an Aristotelian and a Platonist, if you were debating uh, a, an educated Christian, he could accept in principle the idea that there's an unmoved mover uh, but, uh, and who entered history through, not, not through giving birth, not through a son, but through an emanation. In other words, the fullness, the plenitude of, of, of beauty and perfection overflows into uh, uh, something that you could call metaphysically the son of God. But for, but for Stoics and Epic Gods were, were not true. They were either fables or abstract principles that, had, that really were not connected to human imperfection. And of, of course, a wise man would take part in the worship of official. But these gods have no history, no personality, no myth. They don't even have a name. So <clears throat> these people thought that maybe there were, uh, at least mythologically, you could have a perfect hero like uh, Hercules who earned his way to divinity. But to tell a Stoic that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that man might not perish but have everlasting life, would have, they would have just struck them as ridiculous. That the, the, the Godhead that is above all, all you, know, uh, you know, at the top of the, of the uh, of, that would so lower himself, is a, it would strike a Stoic or Epicurean as ridiculous. Now, later on, it will not strike the Neoplatonists as ridiculous. They have a, other quarrels with the Christians, but they, but they really believed that there is an ultimate God, and then there are lesser powers, you know, angelic powers, and, but there's also a power of the divine logos, the power of reason, which has entered into the, into, which could enter into human life. So they, they were prepared to listen and debate for them, the big stumbling block was the Old Testament, which they found grotesquely uh, 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 credulous and superstitious. But as soon as Origen came along and showed that you could have a, uh, an allegorical interpretation of the Old Testament, and you don't take literally injunctions to go out and kill everybody or despoil the Egyptians, once Origen got going, then it was hard to stop the progress of, uh, of Christianity, the progress it was making among thinking people. I think mostly uh, uh, Marcus' problem with Christianity was the bad reputation that Christians had, that they weren't good citizens. And I think he was misinformed. We have in the early apologists, we have the insistence that they have an, they have an obligation to obey the law and serve in the army and to do all the other things that good citizens do. But there were fanatics, as there are in every movement, and even good people get so carried away that they say, I don't have to obey the law. I can go, what if I want to demonstrate against an abortion clinic, I can go in and, and blow it up and kill the janitor, you see. Unfortunately, this is not permitted to Christians. But, uh, but in the end, yes, it, the, the, the incarnation would have been the intellectual stumbling block, uh, but I think it was largely his ignorance of what Christianity was that uh, would have really prevented him. I like to take a generous view of Marcus and Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and Plotinus, as, by the way, Augustine does. Augustine becomes very anti-pagan by the time he's writing The City of God, but he still thinks that Plato and Plotinus were moved by the Holy Spirit to, to utter uh, uh, their arguments, which are which are based on – which to him had been revealed truth to them. And so I'm, I think that says that he knows that there are gods who take care of it. I think he's I think he's telling the truth. I mean I think it is there's only one God and, and through his angels who does take care of us. But I think there is something divinely beautiful and virtuous in the thinking of Marcus, even though he found himself on the wrong side of this great historical division. Yes, and I have more passages marked. I'm sure you have more passages marked, Dr. Fleming, but we, we don't have time to, to go further into this is is there maybe one or two? Are there one or two more things you'd like to talk about as we close out today's episode? Um, I think we've 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 sort of covered it. What uh, the, the essential part? Marcus represents a bridge from uh, first 
from uh, the extremism of, and, and I think silliness of early Greek Stoicism, even though it's quite brilliant and important. And Seneca and Marcus and Epictetus as Roman Stoics point the way toward a great deal of, of, of Christian ethics. It used to be a cliche of Catholic seminaries that uh, the church took its metaphysics from Plato and Aristotle and its, mor- and its morality from the Stoics. This is an exaggeration, the kind that you always hand out to young undergraduates. So, you know, it's like a, giving them a baseball card with the, the formula for life. But it's substantially true. And that studying, if you read Seneca and you read Marcus and you read Epictetus, and then you, and then you look, for example, at St. Paul and St. Augustine, you see you're dealing in the same moral world. And one of the things this is so useful to Christians is we tend to think of ourselves as uh, freaks or we're, we're supermen. We, we have the only truth, whereas what Christianity has always taught us is that the, the, the divine logos was, was accessible to the human race from, from the beginning. And the notion that, 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 that just simply... We, 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 we sort of, they could make the whole thing up within a 50-year period is nonsense. The best things in the Stoic and Platonist and Aristotelian tradition, they are compatible with Christianity because they are true, just as 2 plus 4 equals 2, just as the Pythagorean uh, theorem is true. So the, the moral teachings of antiquity are true, and that is why it's not just that they influence Christianity, it's that they converge with Christianity in acknowledging the truth, and, and by truth, I mean reality. Well, I think that's a good place for us to finish today's episode, Dr. Fleming. As always, thanks good. for your time. Good. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation. All rights are reserved. These podcasts are made possible by our paid members to ensure that our hosts and writers can contribute regularly, not on a volunteer basis. If you have any questions about anything you heard on today's episode, or if you wish to acquire rebroadcast rights, please email podcasts at fleming.foundation. Until next time, on behalf of all of us here at the Foundation, make the most of a dark age. <laughs>